This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Uh, interesting news. The uh, CRTC, Canadian Radio Television Commission, has declared that broadband internet is now a basic service that all Canadians should have access to, regardless of where they live. Nothing more frustrating than when you go someplace, and well, especially, I guess, in some of the northern reaches even of this province, and you find out that you can't get service. That can be rather problematic. So what's it, how's this going to happen? What's it going to cost? And, and what are the implications? Uh, let's uh, ask Katie Anderson. Katie is a digital rights campaigner with Open Media. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Katie. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm good. You? Good, good. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this uh, the CRTC announcement, I guess it is, at this stage. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, were you surprised by this? Uh, I was surprised by parts of it um, and really excited and helpful. So... We expected something good to be happening. So when the hearing was happening on this issue back in April, um, the CRTC chairman, J.P. Blaze, called for a national broadband strategy. So we knew it was going to be really important in the CRTC, so we were quite hopeful today. But the speed targets they set out are really ambitious, so we were surprised by that. Um, And they also, not only did they label home internet, um, broadband internet an essential service, but also mobile internet. So the you know the LTE that we get on our phones. Yeah. Um, that they've also declared that to be a basic service, which is that was surprising and uh, really exciting for us. We're kind of moving in this direction anyway, though, aren't we, Katie? I mean, I've noticed a lot more towers in in the last few years. We are, but I mean, not fast enough. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, that line, it's 2016, but. A lot of rural Canadians, up to 18%, don't have access to high-speed internet. Um, so it's just, it's not good enough. So we're a lot of us are really lucky to have high-speed internet, but um, too many Canadians have been left behind. You, you mentioned that the targets, uh, I think the word you used was ambitious. Okay, are they doable? I think so. I think they're really doable. But if we look, they're actually uh, 10 times what the United States has, has called for. Um but I think it's good. I mean, we need to be really forward-looking. This is going to serve us for quite a number of years, and I think that the way that we use the Internet changes so quickly that it's really important that you do kind of, um, you know, set your regulations for the future. So so this is going to take a huge investment, though, obviously. And where's the money going to come from? Huge. So we don't really know. <laughs> so part of it was, has been allocated. So a great thing about yesterday's announcement was they set aside a fund that internet service providers will contribute to. So it starts off at $100 million, um, and then will increase to $200 million. So that's good. And then in April, the government announced, the federal government, $500 million for rural broadband investment. Um, so that's helpful. So we've got at least $700 million. But we know it's going to cost at least $2 billion all the way to $5 billion to really make this work and to make sure that all Canadians have access. So it's a good start, but we are looking for more funding. Uh, is there any chance these guys may be dragging their heels on this? I mean, I mean, it's one thing for the CRTC to say this is our goal, but, I mean, somebody's going to have to fund this, as you mentioned. There's already been a fund established for this, but at the same time, it's a matter of how fast these guys are going to put these things up. Yeah, I, I do expect that uh, we'll see some, some fight back from them, but... I mean, I think it's a great opportunity for internet service providers to really have a chance to invest in their networks and really meet Canadians where they want to be and where their customers want to be, which is having high-speed networks. I, I mean, I read, I, I read the press release here, and, and I'll just read the line for our, our listeners. Uh, where's that one here? Um, 
yeah, the telecom providers will be made to contribute to a $750 million fund. <laughs> that that kind of sounds, Katie, as if they're going to be drag kicking and screaming into this. This is not a volunteer effort. Yeah, but uh, so of course they don't want to, um, you know, divert their, their revenue. But on the other hand, internet service providers do use a lot of Canadian infrastructure. They are, um, you know, there's grants that they get. There's ways that they're able to connect into um, funding that Canadians have set aside. So we don't really think it's an unfair thing. And, I mean, if we look at profits and the revenues that these guys make, it's they're huge. And there's just a few, a handful of companies that completely dominate it. So, I mean, what we'd like to see at Open Media and what we hear from Canadians is to open up the networks and to allow more players to come into the game, and um, that'll really increase competition. Well, yeah, we've been talking about that on the program for years, and I mean, this is a welcome announcement. I agree with you totally that that to make this more accessible for more people, that's always a good thing, uh, because there is a a reliability on on the Internet these days. It's not just a a, a flight of fancy. It's a business tool. It's, It's what a lot of people use to get by in their everyday lives. So the more people that can be exposed to it, the better. I get that. But we still have a problem in this country, Katie, with obviously the number of players that are allowed to play this game here. In other words, the providers themselves. And we still tend to pay some of the highest rates around because of that. Yeah, I mean, another study just came out yesterday as this announcement was going on, um, I think out of of Finland, uh, looking at data prices. And again, Canadians top the list. So we pay the highest prices in the industrialized world, both for mobile and landline internet. And I mean, it's hard to compare when you want to look at Canada and then you look at other countries like South Korea or Finland or even in the UK where they can get unlimited data packages on cell phones for 30 Canadian dollars a month. Um, so it's, it's tempting to compare that way. But I mean, even if you look within Canada, we have obviously geographic challenges. But if you look to provinces like Manitoba and Saskatchewan, who have an extra internet service provider player on the scene, so... You've got Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan, and MTS in Manitoba. Um, as soon as you add an extra player there, we see that prices drop by up to half. And it's not just MTS and Saskatchewan that are offering those prices. As soon as you get in those markets, Rogers, Bell, Telus will slash their prices to compete. And I think that really shows us that it can be done, and, and it speaks to, I think, the revenue that these guys are making and shows that they do have room to move. Um, and shows what a little bit of competition can do for Canadians. Well, yeah, and and I understand the the geographical challenges, but I mean those are exist in the states too. They've they've done it, and and I can't understand why. Except the reality here is that every time that anybody makes any noise about trying to do that and bring other providers in, uh, the big three go and march themselves in front of the CRTC and and, and cry poor and say, well, we can't do that. You know, we we're investing in this and this, and you know, we're running a thin line, etc. And the CRTC seems to buy it every time. Well, you know what? I think the CRTC is starting to get a little bit. I think the CRTC is starting to get a little bit tougher. I mean, we heard uh, Chairman JP Blaze recently talk about um, UK and Australia, where they have they're starting to really open up their network. So it's called structural separation, and that's where you get you allow more players onto the networks. You now allow municipalities onto the networks, um, and we see time after time that it just drops prices. Um, and like you mentioned, Canadians already pay such insanely high prices, so um, it's definitely needed and something that we would 
would love to see and that we hear from Canadians that they really want. Well, the fees themselves are high, and, and then, of course, the added fees are, are ridiculous. I mean, uh, a few years ago, well, we were just over in the U.K. this past spring, and uh, the, the business people that I went over there with, it was with a group of lawyers, it was cheaper for them to just buy a phone over there and, and just use a plan, like, a, a, you know, for the, for the week or two that they were going to be there, than to try to use the plan to carry over and use their, their, their existing plan here, you know, with the, the travel plan. It's it's just it's insane the, the the fees that we pay and that we're up uh, against here. But you're that, uh, that same thing happened to me. I was just in London about a month ago. A friend bought a phone because it was cheaper. Yeah, and just you know, with, yeah. it, it, buy a two week plan for it and yeah. just and leave the phone there. Give it to somebody when you're finished. Or, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't need it anymore. It's cheaper then than to, to try to carry your plan over. And and those are the sorts of things I think people are starting to make some noise about. And and to your point. Uh, maybe Mr. Blay and the rest of the commission are starting to finally hear that, and maybe this is a first step. I think so. I mean, in this hearing, um, we at Open Media were lucky enough to talk to 50,000 Canadians um, and submitted their comments on the record, and I think part of why we see this decision now is that Canadians really are speaking up. You know, they're realizing that they don't have to pay these. I mean, they do have to pay these prices, but we shouldn't have to, right? So as you look around, I think Canadians are are starting to realize, you know, what, what's really happening and, and what they can ask for and what they can expect and what's reasonable. So I think that uh, it's the voices of Canadians that really are leading Blay and his CRTC uh, to people to, to come up with this. Well, sure, and, and you're right. I mean, that, that public outcry is eventually going to be the determining factor. I mean, many of our listeners, I sure remember the days when Bell had a monopoly on the telephone business here, too. Uh, and, and, you know, finally, the, the CRTC of that day relented and said, no, we have to open the market up. I, I noticed, by the way, that the, the one criticism I've, I've heard from a, a number of different people about this plan, generally, they agree with what you're saying, that this is a thumbs up, this is a great idea. But they said they talked about uh, making it more, uh, more accessible, but they haven't made it more affordable. And maybe the reason they didn't do that is because that discussion has to entail bringing more providers in. Uh, maybe that's uh, the Pandora's box they didn't want to open right now. Uh, I think... I think that's a good point. I mean, that's what we wanted to see. We're super happy with the speed targets. We're happy that it applied to mobile. But um, really what was missing from this was that affordability price. So open media had asked for before the commission um, a minimum affordable package that they could have. So, But, I mean, I think you're right. Like, But Jay, uh, Mr. Blaze alluding to structural separation in the U.K. and Australia, that was really heartening. Um, so hopefully we'll see more of that in the future. I mean, we've got the decision coming up soon on differential pricing. Um, so maybe in a few months we'll see more talk about affordability. But it, it has to be it has to be talked about. We need high speed internet, but it has to come with that affordability piece. And you know they're they're out there. I'm not sure if you recall the story. It was about four or five years ago when the, the federal government of the day announced that they're going to open up space and broadband and and look for for other people to come in and more competition. And and within 24 hours of making that announcement, Verizon was on the phone and said, yeah, we'd like to do that. Uh, and then about a day and a half after that, the government changed their minds and said, nah, we're not going to do that anyway. We don't want any more foreign investment. So somebody obviously uh, made a phone call and got to them. But that was a political decision. And and that's one of the big hurdles, I guess, that, that p- folks like you at Open Media and others are going to have to overcome is that there's... I understand that it's the CRTC and not the government that makes but this, the decision, but they certainly have some influence in this, and, and they've got to come on side with the general public, too. Yeah, well, I think the Parliament has you know, named the CRTC to be their experts around telecommunications policy, so um, 
I hope that really they'll take the CRTC's advice to heart and make sure that they act on it. But that's definitely going to be our focus going forward. Um, we've already started a campaign on it, but now that the CRTC has named this as a basic service, we need the federal government to step in and to actually implement this plan because, you know, it's a great idea and it's a really good start, but without act, actual action and, um, you know, a commitment from the federal government, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say how far we'll get, so we really need that. Well, they're the muscle. I mean, this is the idea. This is the concept, but now the government has to be the muscle behind it to make sure this all happens, right? Exactly, yeah. Does this make it easier, though, the, the fact that they've made this recommendation at this point, Katie? Does it make it easier to uh, to uh, go after the, uh, to the CRTC now about affordability and say that has to be the next step here? Absolutely. I mean, they've really made it easy for them and really paved the way. Um, we now have joined just a handful of countries in the whole world that have gone out and named it at basic service. Um, there's Israel, the U.S., Finland, but, I mean, not many else have done this, so... It gives Canada the chance to really become a digital leader and to really uh, innovate in new ways. You know, like there is that price tag on it, that $2 billion. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to see that come back. You know what I mean? Like we have, it's such a great opportunity for Canada's economy to really uh, help lead the way here. I mean, it's such a good, it's so great in terms of innovation. I mean, the way that we use the Internet changes so quickly. So naming those really high speed targets, I think, was very, very smart. Um, because it, it's going to change really fast, and this will allow people to use the Internet I think, in new futuristic ways. If this happens, and we're hoping that it does sooner than later, uh, I, I've got this feeling, Katie, that uh, that these guys, the big three, are going to be back in front of the CRTC saying, fine, okay, if you're going to make us do this, uh, we're going to have to adjust our rate structure. I mean, that's that's a debate that we're probably going to have to have pretty soon. Absolutely. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> so you, you, guys, you guys will be back up in Ottawa. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> saying wait a minute—that's not the intention at all. Uh, and then it's not just the—it's not just the uh, the the the, the, uh, the folks that are providing the ISPs here. The, the reality here is—I mean, anybody does that when governments try to impose fees on them. Uh, the first thing they try to do is pass it on to their consumers, and I, I understand that to a point. But I, I think the intent of the CRTC uh, directive here is is to have these companies invest again in, in, into this. In other words, this is this is money that they should have been spending all along, and they're oh, asking them exactly. to do it now. I think uh, setting those high-speed targets is is a large part of that and saying that they need to invest. You have large networks that uh, are still running DSL instead of fiber, and they're just not going to be able to meet these 50-10 speed targets. So I think that was probably part of the CRT's decision when they named those speed targets. But uh, it'll be really great. I think that the, the ISPs really have maybe not an obligation, but they certainly have now an opportunity to do this investment to really meet customers where they're at. Um, so we'll see. Well, uh, you should be feeling pretty proud of yourselves that uh, that they finally uh, listened to what you guys have been talking about for the last number of years. Uh, and this is not the uh, the end of it. This is not the victory. This is just a first step towards that. But it's a pretty big step. So congratulations. And I mean, we're also proud of the, all the Canadians that came forward and really raised their voices. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. But one of the topics, just about everybody who talked to them, about whether it was Scott Thompson, of course, here at CHML, talked to her, Robert Benzie of The Star did an interview. Uh, it's, it's about hydro rates. Let's face it, that's the story here these days. And we know what's going to be happening in the new year. There are a couple of different things that are happening. There will be some hydro relief uh, because the uh, the province uh, next month will uh, remove the 8% pro- provincial portion of the uh, 
HST on your hydro bill. They say that's going to help. Uh, the premier has also promised and, and reiterated, I guess, that she is not going to freeze hydro rates. We'll see about that in a couple of minutes. So what options does she have? Because she says she has more tools, more things that she wants to do to try to make it easier for us to pay our hydro bills. Let me bring Tom Adams into the conversation. Tom, of course, independent energy and environmental consultant, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his insight. Morning, Tom. How are you doing today? Hey, Bill. All the best of the season. And happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny, even the very mention of that brings up this, that conjures up this image in my mind of all the, the complaints I've heard about people that said, yeah, well, I, I usually put Christmas lights up, but I can't afford to this year because of my hydro bill. Uh, it just seems everywhere you turn, Tom, everybody's talking hydro. That is the story of the year, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, the chickens have come home to roost. What, what, what the, the Libs did for a, uh, a lot of years was they, they got into very expensive commitments, but the, 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 the payback period didn't start till out into the future. Well, now we live in the future. The future has arrived, and these chickens are coming home to roost. Uh, all these bills have to be paid, and there's a full-on panic going on down there at Queen's Park. Well, no wonder. And uh, I guess the biggest frustration right now, in many people's eyes, Tom, they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel here. Well, and if they do, the light's turned off because they can't afford it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, it's a candle uh, um, uh, that, that somebody's lit because it's, uh, you know, the only way they can keep the lights on. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, like this, this situation is, is, is really rough. Um, uh, so the, you know, the, the province is now, uh, uh, or, you know, the, the premier is saying, oh, that there's relief on the way. Well, but, you know, if we translate what she means by relief, what, what she's really talking about there is a combination of cost shifting. So, uh, you know, there's a new tax on, on electricity bills. Uh, to pay for a, a program for low-income consumers called the Ontario Electricity Support Program. So, you know, that's a, that's a straight-out shift from one customer to another. Um, another one that, uh, you know, another source of relief, so-called relief, what the province, you know, what, what Kathleen Wynne calls relief, is, is really a, a, like a, a, a check-kiting scheme uh, involving her cap-and-trade program. So what's gone on here is, um, uh, of course, the province suddenly kind of you just realized, uh, you know, just in recent times uh, after a couple of bad by-election outings, that um, uh, customers are actually concerned about their power bills, and so they, you know, they've got to come up with some kind of a solution for it. And so the solution that they've come up with is, um, uh, you know, one of the one of the big solutions is this new cap and trade program. So the slap uh, a, a huge new tax on on uh, consumers across the board uh, for um, uh, associated with their uh, this cap and trade program. The biggest item where the money is going to go. Uh, from the cap-and-trade revenue is over to um, uh, subsidize the cost of electricity. And so, like, $1.3 billion or something out of the cap-and-trade program gets shifted over um, to cover up the cost of electricity. This is just like, you know, somebody's in trouble with their credit card account. They're not making the monthly minimums. 
They get another credit card with another credit card company, take the cash advance and cover the, you know, the monthly minimum. That's so I, I'm going to use my Visa card on. to pay off my MasterCard then. There you go. Um, uh, and, and the, the, you know, the, the province has been doing this for a long time. Of course, it's, it's a, you know, it's a stupid game, right? It, it doesn't work. Um, uh, but that's how things work down there at Queen's Park these days. Well, and it's, it's, it's another example of how, you know, one thing that they say is, is supposed to help us is being canceled out by something else that they're doing. Uh, the classic example, as you just talked about, they're going to take the 8% of the provincial portion of, uh, of the HST off, but then they're introducing cap and trade. Now, they say, they say the average household is probably going to save about 540 bucks a year with the, the reduction or the elimination, I guess, of the, uh, the provincial portion of the HST. But the cap and trade is probably going to cancel that out for most people. Oh, oh more than that. Um, uh, and actually, the, the, the cap and trade story is getting interesting. When the province uh, first announced cap and trade back in February, they said that um, the cost that was going to be tacked on to your natural gas, your household natural gas bill, was going to be five bucks uh, um, a month. Um, uh, yesterday, the Ontario Energy Board announced what uh, um, their estimate is, and it's still just a preliminary estimate. But um, so the the monthly charge that'll uh, work out um, annualized across the year um, uh, was announced by the Energy Board yesterday. Well, it's not five bucks. Uh, now it's moved up to uh, between six dollars and seventeen cents to six dollars and seventy cents per month. So that's like uh, what we're talking about. There is a 23 to 34 percent increase in the uh, direct, uh, uh, visible poor part of the cap and trade bill that shows up on your natural gas bill. This is an escalation that's occurred just since February of this year. Uh, it, the cap and trade is turning out to be. Yeah, another out of control spending program that ranking up, racking up huge taxes. Well, and you've just talked about you know, the impact it's going to have on the natural gas bill, and of course on the hydro bill. Uh, it's, I mean, you know, filling up your gas tanks. Can, I mean, there's going to be a huge implication of this too. But yet, when you one off it like that, I guess it makes it sound like it's less evil than it, it's actually going to be. But I mean, we're still going to feel the impact. Oh, the the the, um, uh, the visible part of cap and trade, like the uh, adding uh, six dollars, uh, you know, and change to your natural gas bill, that's just the, the 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 actually it's actually small potatoes relative to the overall cost. The the overall cost of cap and trade, the province estimates, is going to cost eight billion dollars across the Ontario economy over the 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 next four years. Well, um, you know, they say, oh, it's spread across businesses and, and, and households. Well, of course, it, you know, eventually all those costs filter back to us. That works out to about 1700 bucks per household over the next four years for the uh, both direct and indirect costs of cap and trade. It, it, like, so, so, <laughs> Whatever relief we're going to be getting on our power bills uh, um, uh, is going to be overwhelmed by this huge new whack that uh, is cap and trade. Well, and you've just touched on something else, too, that needs to be part of that discussion, is, yes, businesses are going to get hit by this, too. 
uh, they don't absorb that stuff, Tom. They pass it on to the consumer. I mean, that means you're going to pay more for whatever you're going to be buying in 2017. It may be minimal, but, I mean, it all adds up after a, a, a period of time, doesn't it? Well, it's the trickle-down theory, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of, of cap and trade. Uh, they attempt to hide the cost of cap and trade, spreading it into, uh, into businesses, really is a mugs game uh, um, uh, because, uh, like, like you say, uh, um, if businesses are to stay in business, they have to recover all their costs. Those costs have to come from their customers ultimately, and um, so those costs are going to trickle down. And, uh, and I mean, we know who pays in, in the end, um, uh, and, you know, and so all these little – shell games of hiding the P here and there and kind of trying to keep it complicated, you know, in the end of, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that much. Let's talk a little bit about the, the rates, because the Premier, in, in a number of interviews in the last week or so, Thomas suggested that uh, there is no way she's going to freeze hydro rates, uh, a la Ernie Eves, as, as he did on the eve of that election, which, by the way, didn't work for him, as it turned out. Uh, but, okay. <laughs> Without trying to sound overly cynical, you and I both know that politicians say they're not going to do something right up until the time that they do it. Uh, and, you know, what other options does she have? I mean, if, if this continues as a problem and it seems as if it's going to for the, at least the foreseeable future, she's going to have to do something drastic here. That's absolutely right. Um, uh, and, we, and we've seen, you know, in the, for example, in the budget that was announced uh, earlier in the year, they, they came out with um, uh, an electricity support program that didn't really go over very well. They ramped it up. Um, and so although the premier is saying that she's not going to freeze power rates, I I see a scenario where um, uh, she, she actually could uh, uh, freeze power rates. The the, the provincial government uh, has uh, enormous financial control over how the costs of electricity are recovered, and um, she's got a lot of mechanisms to push costs further off into the future. Um, uh, so it, it's it's very conceivable that um, uh, that a rate freeze could be coming down the pipe. Now, of course, we've we've seen these rate freeze uh, these phony little electoral tricks played before, and I mean it all ends up with a, a, a even worse mess after the fact. But. Um, uh, but you know, but but voters have been tricked before um, by these kinds of things. Um, uh, Dalton McGinty used it in the election of 2011 with his introduction of something called the Ontario Clean Energy Benefit. Um, uh, so we've 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 seen this thing before. You know, we've gone to the sequel before. Um, uh, it, it's it's very conceivable that a rate freeze in 2017 could happen. But let's be clear about this. I mean, the initial thing, you're absolutely right. When you look at the bill and say, oh, that's great, they've frozen the rates, boy, can I, I feel much better. But when Eves did it, uh, he froze them at 4.3 cents per kilowatt hour, but they were paying 6.2 cents for that. Well, of course, that just didn't increase the debt. Uh, I mean, it might have looked good for a while, but, you know, that's that's part of the problem we have now, isn't it, Tom? We're paying for that mistake. Uh, well, <laughs> Yeah, 
and actually, the, the Toronto Star has a you know an article about this, um, uh, you know, from one of these year-end interviews. And 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 Kathleen uh, uh, Kathleen Wynn is uh, uh, very cogent, actually, I, I, and and thoughtful in her criticism of the Ernie Eves rate freeze. Um, uh, and you know, Eves deserves all the you know <laughs> all, all, all 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 the the blame that's thrown at him for for his carelessness around this thing. Um, and like you say, it didn't even work electorally for him. So I mean, the whole thing was just a complete disaster. Um, uh, but it, 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 I you know. The, the fact that Kathleen Wynne is making a promise that there's going to be no rate freeze is, uh, you know, not something that 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 I you know find particularly impressive. How much time? I mean, the the, the HST thing starts, uh, I guess, early in the new year, right after the the holidays. Uh, how much time are they going to give before they're going to have to start doing something? I mean, she's also talked about looking at uh, at the whole system, uh, how we pay this, the delivery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does she have time to tear this whole thing down and build it up again, or are they just going to start tweaking it again? Oh, we, what what has happened in uh, you know over uh, really more than ten years now? Actually, going back to the Ernie Eves rate freeze, which was announced in November of two thousand and two, um, uh, uh, Ontario's power system has been getting one political band aid after another. Um, and you know whether it's these phony rate freezes or you know all these crazy programs and just endless shell games of you know like for example this most recent cap and trade game where we whack you on your natural gas bill in order to try to pretend that electricity costs are under control all that kind of nonsense um, you know so this this kind of thing. As band aids get added to band aids, uh, rather than addressing the root causes of what are causing uh, um, you know power costs to rise across the province, the the band aids themselves make the power system impenetrably complex. Um, uh, they, and many of the band aids interact with each other in unexpected ways. Uh, uh, you know, financially and operationally, so we get all this just these these ad hoc solutions or what 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 the politicians think of as solutions that turn into new problems. And just one example: this um, uh, taking the HST off of uh, uh, electricity bills. You know, I can it, you know it's a cute little kind of political electoral trick for the liberals to steal a, a party platform uh, element from the NDP. But really, I mean, it just adds to the deficit. It's, an, you know, it's a billion dollars a year added to the deficit. Um, uh, I mean, that's not a sustainable solution. The, the, Ontario's power system, if we're going to get this thing stabilized, we have to go back to some basic principles of responsible management, and, and and you know, get away from this nonsense of just shifting 
uh, um, uh, costs between taxpayers versus ratepayers, left pocket, right pocket. I mean, the shell games have to stop. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, with the uh, snowy, icy weather we've had over the last few days, uh, slippery sidewalks are the order of the day, and uh, driveways, and just about anywhere else. Uh, We need salt, we need sand, whatever it is that they put on there. Uh, It doesn't seem to be working. And one of the reasons for that is, uh, (laughs) well, there's not much of it around there. Have you ever tried to buy some stuff to to try to melt some of the salt or sand or whatever it is that you're using to get the ice off the sidewalks? It's, It's almost impossible to get this stuff these days. So the city's stance in regards to salted pathways uh, is somewhat problematic this year, too, for many people. To try to get some clarity on this, uh, we welcome uh, Jason Farr to the program, the city councilor for downtown Ward 2. And, uh, Jay, thanks for the time. Merry Christmas, by the way. Good to have Merry, you with us today. Merry Christmas. Congratulations on over $5 million raised by you and your colleagues there at Chorus this year with the Children's Fund bill. It's a remarkable feat. Well, you uh, toiled here for a while, too, and you uh, you understand the legacy of that, the, the Tree of Hope and uh, and the Children's Fund here. And uh, so, and you know the, the warm feeling you get as a, as, as a contributor to, to work here. But it's even better just to see the, the way that everybody else in this community rallies around this, this fabulous program every year. Best time of the year to be a DJ, for sure. Not the greatest time of year to be uh, walking on sidewalks, though. And I know the line in the song is laughing all the way, but uh, we might have gone with White Christmas or something to, well, to open here. Oh, yeah, or slip sliding away, something yeah. like that. <laughs> right. uh, okay, enough about the music stuff. <laughs> I mean, what's going on here? I, I had somebody complain the other day. They, called, they, they sent me an email about this. Mm. Uh, in your area, by the way, in right. downtown, they had an office down there, and they were working, and they said they called the city to do something about uh, the ice and snow, and and the person who answered the phone. Now I don't know who it was. I, but they said, "Well, we don't have any stuff to put down." And I said, Are "You?" I read that, and I thought, "You got to be kidding me! The city doesn't have stuff. You sure you must have stuff to whatever it is that you put on there. It's not. It's not really uh, it's salt that you guys use, is it?" Uh, well, it's a, it's a combination. It depends. Uh, salt, uh, uh, salt, sand. I think I even heard that we have. Uh, 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 beat beads uh, that we put uh, on places. Apparently, that works very well, and we've been doing that recently. I can tell you this: we have ample amounts uh, now, and generally to start the season. There was one winter there where near the end of the season it got a little scary. We were getting close to depletion, but uh, I'm not sure why that person would have heard that and from whom. But uh, right, I mean, I was just off the phone with uh, our manager of roads and maintenance, Bob Paul, and uh, so far so good. I mean, at the start of the season, we're usually well stocked. Well, and and by the way, yeah, kudos to the city staff for for the way that they've maintained the roads uh, because it's been pretty messy here for the last little while. But uh, but you guys, as usual, do an outstanding job uh, getting the snow off the way, and and for the most part, uh, getting the ice off the way too. Although I'm sure you've heard complaints because I've received a few of them here too that the bike lanes aren't being done and uh, or haven't been done to the satisfaction of the people that are still using them. Have you heard anything like that? Uh, pretty good in the core. Um, on the major routes, we uh, have the priority. The bike lanes are right up there with roads as priority. Now, they, I saw a reference to Coots and the bike lane uh, in that area in Ward 1 that hadn't been um, uh, shoveled off in, a, in an expedited way. But uh, that's over in Ward 1, and that's not necessarily an arterial. So we, we have that level 1 priority after an event where we do the main roads and bike lanes are 
are uh, right up there as a priority when we do clear. That was the plan when we did the Canon bike lanes, and whenever we uh, implement bike lanes, we have a clearing mechanism in place before we, you know, put that infrastructure in place. Now that said, absolutely now and again, and and there may have been, although I hadn't heard here in Ward Two, a bike lane or two that uh, took a little longer than we would have uh, hoped for. But this was a real unusual event uh, with uh, mild weather, all of that snow, and then the deep freeze hitting. And, you know, the whole city was iced over, as you know, Bill, and I heard you reference it earlier, and it wasn't exclusive to Hamilton. So, you know, when I think about it, we actually did a very good job, and not just the corporation of the city of Hamilton, but the residents out there. There are still some walks out there that uh, need to be addressed, and we are definitely at the enforcement level now. Um, But when you consider how many walks there are in the high pedestrian nature of Ward 2, I think for the most part, a lot of uh, the residents and commercial operators did a good job as well. Here's a, here's another email, just as we have this conversation, and it has to do with uh, the salt boxes that, that have been installed and, and, and usually placed out this time of year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the past, of course, the city comes along and, and fills those up, and, and I guess as residents need the stuff, uh, they uh, they just dip themselves into that. Alleyways, uh, sidewalks, whatever the case might be. But anyway, uh, they were told that uh, the problem here is that people drive up to these things uh, with their pickup trucks and empty the salt box for themselves and leave them empty. And I'm told now that the city policy is that they don't put anything in those salt boxes anymore. Uh, I've heard the same. I haven't dealt uh, specifically with this particular issue. I've heard both, that uh, theft is an issue. Um, but private uh, operators, too, at the larger commercial box store lots with the with the piles of salt in the back uh, see the same thing after hours theft and it's not not good, not cool. Uh, and certainly we were having the same issue with the salt boxes over the early part of uh, uh, my uh, first term of uh, council, but I haven't heard anything. I can't give you an update on what our policy is right now on salt boxes, but there are less of them. That's for certain, and we rely on our contractors and our staff to do that work. Now, the problem there, though, is, if, for instance, in the alleyways, as this email is referring, uh, the plows don't go there. They, those are unassumed. Yeah. I mean, the city has no responsibility. They, they're what they call unassumed alleyways. Most of them, yes. You don't, you don't plow them anyway. No. So it's up to the individuals to do that. But, I mean, obviously then, you know, if there's no salt or sand to put down there, uh, these things are almost impassable. In a heavy event, uh, not just alleyways uh, can be impassable. It's uh, it's a challenge. It takes some time, and uh, you count on, on, on residents who, if they're using those unassumed alleyways, often working together to, to clear them out. But, yeah, we do we do not clear the unassumed. There's some uh, major corridor assumed alleyways, obviously, that are, are concrete that will clear because we have, um, you know, things like waste collection that happens. Uh, we consider uh, public safety a concern because they're, they're heavily used pedestrian laneways. I think of the one in um, between James and Wellington uh, on the um, north side of King. Certainly, we uh, we had a up your alley program that addresses things like snow clearing in those cases. But the large majority of alleyways, you know, you count on on the residents who are using them to 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 do the clearing if possible. But you got six feet of snow, it's almost impossible sometimes. All right, let's talk about the sidewalks. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, and and this is maybe a good time as any to reiterate. That, uh, that the business owner or the residents, whichever it is, has that responsibility to clear the snow off the sidewalk in front of their property, right? 24 hours after an event, and then we start enforcement, and certainly we want to make sure we set a good example before 
the city of Hamilton starts an enforcement, so we make sure that all of our uh, municipally owned and operated properties are cleared before we do that. And then once we start enforcement, Bill, after the 24 hours after an event, it's sort of an, a, a note we get. We don't enforce to the tune of a fine right away. We say we leave a note or we make a call and say, you got eight hours to get at this. And after the eight hours, then we enforce accordingly. And if it comes to the municipality have to do the clearing on the private property, then we would build a tax roll. What about sand and snow? And, and, and that's one thing to say, okay, we've had a snowfall. But uh, what happened with a lot of people this past weekend, of course, is they cleared their snow after we had the snow. And then the freezing rain came along and they've got ice. Uh, it was a nightmare. Yeah. So so does the city have a policy on that? Or is that once again, the, 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 the rep, is that the, the, the duty of the, uh, the homeowner or the business owner? It's still the duty of the, of the homeowner on sidewalks we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the it starts the clock starts ticking all over again. Now you've got an event. It's about clearing the sidewalk. So it could be ice, it could be snow, but it's keeping that path clear. So the ice event, the 24-hour clock uh, started ticking once uh, the sidewalks were caked in ice. And uh, you know we had a number of them here in Ward Two. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at a list now, uh, ward by ward. The number one ward for the number of complaints received over the course of the last week or so due to the event. Ward one, 180 to City Hall complaints. Received received in Ward 2, 140, and the rest, uh, it goes down from there, 3, 4, around 92, 68, and then uh, only 6 in Ward 10 and 5 in Ward 12. <laughs> you can tell where the rural areas are. But but there's been 800 and probably like 820 complaints so far, which is a little more than usual after an event, and I think the ice is a big part of it. It's slip-sliding in a way, uh, like you say, Bill, uh, and, and downtown where we have high pedestrian uh, volumes, it's, it's, it, it can be very, very concerning, no, no, no doubt, and when you get over 140 calls, and that doesn't even include the calls that, and the emails and the tweets that I received through the Ward 2 office, um, you know, people are on top of it, and people are engaging on it, and, and, and the other part of it, which I really love to see, is when pedestrians are, are helping seniors cross the street, navigate through immediately following an event. So there are some upsides and nice things about uh, when we have events like this, when we see uh, uh, people helping people, and and uh, certainly the seniors need to get around, and we have a high population of seniors here in the city. So we do our best on our municipally owned properties, and we expect uh, the, the commercial operators and the landlords and the residential homeowners to do their best. And for the most part, they do, but we still, you know, have to tackle those those few a few days after an event and enforce in court accordingly. And we have no apprehension of doing that through the board two office. What what about the levels? You just read off the list there about the non-compliance right now, and and I mean that is concerning because this is a safety issue. I mean, one of the related stories here, of course, is the the, the spike in activity at the ERs around the hospitals oh, over yeah. this past weekend, or the urgent care centers, whatever it is. Uh, there's a there a lot of people slipped and fell. They've hurt themselves. There's a, there's an injury aspect. To this too that's got, that's got to be troubling absolutely chief sanderson i mean is already on the record saying it's uh, it's uh, a high it's well above the the average on the slips and the falls and the the fractures uh, this time of year obviously that puts a lot of pressure on on our on our you, you know our, our scarce resource that is uh, ambulances here in the city it's uh, it's no uh, secret in fact i think you had an interview just a couple of days ago yeah, I had mario pastoro on we're yeah. doing the best with the limited uh, resources and mario made very good points on on what needs to be addressed there and certainly when you have an event like this and you're getting um, an overabundance of calls that you normally wouldn't get that puts big pressure on on EMS and not just uh, ambulance fire police there's there's um 
there's a true uh, public safety factor when we have these kinds of events, and then particularly the ice. The ice, for me, is more impactful than the snow. I mean, the snow sometimes it gets walked on, and if the weather's right, it's actually it provides a, a fairly decent traction. Not always, but uh, sometimes uh, I'd rather have a sidewalk that has uh, impacted snow than uh, you know surface ice that you could skate on because that really is truly the most unsafe condition. So far, though, like Bill, it's been very good. Uh, Bob Paul and his team, I don't think I've ever seen in the last couple of years, actually, they've been working better than they ever have before. And I can tell you this, not just anecdotally, anecdotally you know, oftentimes we communicate through a DL Council email um, um, uh, system here at work. So we have the mayor and all of councillors communicating with one another on, on citywide issues. And obviously this was one in the last week. And mostly what you see is accolades to these uh, guys in our roads and maintenance department. They've been doing a very very good job on the, on with the resources they have and they've been treating these as uh, issues as priorities and our BIAs of course are covered many of our BIAs in downtown Hamilton through their levies the extra levies they pay so those sidewalks and those prime retail areas are also covered by our roads and maintenance staff and and, and they do a pretty good job on that as well it's just those that you know all it takes is one operator on a block where everyone's done their part, saving except for that one. And you've got a slippery mess. And in fact, it's probably even more unsafe because you're feeling secure. You're walking along. You pass four shops. It's salted. It's It's got good traction. And suddenly you hit that one shop that, you know, the landlord maybe isn't around or, or, or they haven't been in business or, or for whatever reason they haven't gotten to within a reasonable amount of time uh, taking care of the ice situation. And now that secure walking path turns into a, a disaster waiting to happen. Which begs this question, uh, because I've got a, a number of emails and, and some tweets on this one in the last couple of days, especially since the, the ice conditions uh, have been prevalent. Uh, was Now that you're heading into budgets, uh, and you've already started the negotiations on that, is there any appetite at all for having a discussion about uh, what the city actually looking after the, the cleaning of sidewalks as uh, happens? Well, it happens in Ancaster, but uh, our daughter just moved up to Barrie a little while ago. This is her first winter up there, and, and she's surprised to find out that apparently they clean the sidewalks there, too, uh, which is rather interesting. It's just the bobcat runs up and down there. I see it happening in Ancaster in our neighborhood. Although I don't have sidewalks on my street, but I mean, I see them in all the other streets as well. I know there's a cost to it, but you as well, you've been on council long enough to know that there's also a cost to not doing it too, because the city ends up getting sued. There are legal costs and a myriad of other problems that can occur. Right. I, I believe the operational impact was $8 million annually, but don't quote me on that, but it was a hefty cost if we were going to t- tackle all of the sidewalks after each and every event. Obviously, that varies depending on the number of events and the types of events. Ice might be a little more difficult than running a bobcat and, and shoveling a sidewalk. I can only speak to, uh, well, first of all, the, the debate uh, does uh, pop up from time to time every couple of years, and generally where it goes is uh, south. It uh, doesn't uh, appeal to uh, enough elected officials for it to be a, a, a genuinely debated and decided upon uh, item, save and except for Ancaster, where they've already decided, and they do uh, area rate it, and they pay extra to have their sidewalks in Ancaster cleared. Here downtown in the heart, like I say, of the commercial areas, the BIAs pay an extra levy. Uh, King West, uh, uh, International Village, they have their sidewalks cleared, but they pay into it. Now, that said, Bill, anecdotally, I guess, um, you know, um, I, I, I have the conversations with residents, too. Mostly the seniors say, I wouldn't mind paying extra taxes yeah. if it meant that you were going to shovel my sidewalks. And they feel adamantly, strongly in favor of that. 
And then you get the other side of the coin with those folks that are, 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 are you know, humble in means and, and already feeling they're paying, they're feeling the pinch, they're paying a lot of taxes to begin with. Now you get the hydro argument, which you've uh, covered brilliantly these last couple of months, um, and they don't want to pay any more, and they're fine with getting out there and clearing their own snow. So finding the balance for me, I mean, we have a, a downtown seniors working group. We get together now and again. We just began that last year. We'll be getting together again early in the new year. These are the kinds of things that we can talk about. And then, you know, do we want to area rate it or look at it more uh, broadly or more specifically and uh, speak to it broadly, but then get into the specifics? Are there areas of the ward where we may want to well, tackle this problem? Well, because you're already doing it in some areas, as you mentioned, in some of the commercial areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city also cleans sidewalks around parks uh, because those are city-owned. Right. Uh, you are the landlord technically there. So, I mean, you see that happen all the time. And and I know I always hear from people that get frustrated and say, for God's sake, the thing was do- doing the sidewalk in front of such and such a park. And then yeah. they lift the blade up and off they go. Why don't they just finish and go all the way down the street? Yeah. No, it's it's and, there already. Exactly. And then, of course, now you get into the liability issues. We, we were trying to be good Samaritans and kept going and didn't do it good enough. And a nice patch formed. Someone slipped and they call the city and say, well, I saw a city plow going down a, a residential sidewalk. So it, it, there's there's um, there's definitely uh, um, a debate that rears. Uh, it's, it's, the topic comes up from time to time. It, it's never gone anywhere in my six years, Bill. That's the best I can answer it at this time. It's certainly one that is of interest and has varying opinions depending on the demo, de, uh, demographics and the neighborhoods um, and, and uh, those sorts of things in Ward 2. Uh, but we've never gone anywhere with it in six years. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.